morning we're looking at Jonah uh, chapter 1 uh, and focusing primarily on verses 4 through 16. So Jonah chapter 1 uh, beginning at verse 4. Once again listen now to the reading of God's holy word. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God, and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest part of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us, so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us, For whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And so he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. <clears throat> a gracious God in heaven, we... We do rejoice and give thanks to you for your word. We know that your word is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And as we come to this passage this morning, we ask, Father, that your spirit would be active in our hearts and going forth with your word. And that as your word goes forth, that it would truly find within each of our hearts that rich, fertile soil that will bring about a great and abundant fruit for your glory. And so we ask for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. One of the glorious truths that we find throughout the scriptures is that God is a God who 
who pursues. He pursues and seeks after lost sinners to redeem them and deliver them from the destruction of sin that would be from the destruction that sin would bring upon them. We see this pursued even in the early chapters of of the book of Genesis. After Adam and Eve had uh, sinned against God in the garden, they had eaten the forbidden fruit. And remember what they did? They went and they, they hid from God. And yet the Lord graciously pursued them and, and sought them out so that He could provide a proper covering for their sin. And then throughout the Old Testament we see the Lord pursuing His people Israel, calling them to be His own special people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And even the amazing thing is that He maintains this pursuit even when His people sin and they turn to idolatry and and gross immorality violating his and rebelling against his law and then in the new testament we find jesus pursuing sinners pursuing outcasts and pursuing the poor and the needy the lame and the demon possessed those who who had no help or compassion bestowed upon them yet Jesus pursued them and he loved them and he healed them in in both body and soul in fact one of the more moving parables of Jesus that we find is is in Luke 15 and Jesus tells of the good faithful shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep in order to pursue and save the one sheep that had strayed away and was lost. And when he finds that lost sheep, there's much rejoicing and giving thanks even in heaven. Indeed, it is praiseworthy that the Lord is such a God who pursues us, not only because we can't pursue Him because of our sin, but as Paul reminds us in Romans 3, and and here there in Romans 3, Paul is quoting from Psalm 14, when he says, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have come... They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. And so we see that we're unwilling and we're unable to seek after Him. And so praise God that He pursues us. On our passage this morning, we see this pursuit in action as the Lord pursues Jonah, who's fallen into sin and has put himself and others in in grave danger because of it. And Lord willing, next week we'll consider how God not only pursues those who are His people already, like Jonah, but how He also pursues undeserving sinners who don't know Him. In this situation, be the, the pagan sailors on the ship. But before we consider God's pursuit of of believing and unbelieving sinners, we must first understand some important characteristics of God that are often involved in these pursuits. And so first to understand why God pursues undeserving sinners, we must understand that God is a God who abounds in grace and mercy. Grace might be referred to 
<clears throat> that's kind of a winning quality or attractiveness that invites a, a favorable reaction. It can also be a, a, a disposition towards someone, right? So you, you have grace or favor, goodwill towards someone. To be graceful is to be described as favorable and pleasant. And to respond or react pleasantly or favorably. And so there's kind of a consistency then between what you are and what you do. It's like a circular reasoning that a, a person is graceful because they're gracious. And they're gracious because they're full of grace. Well, of course, we see this in God Himself, right? God is, in His nature, gracious. In Psalm 116, uh, we, the psalmist declares, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. And the words grace, mercy, compassion, love are all very much tied in together. Because God is full of grace and truth. Well, then what he does, how he acts, is also most gracious. Especially when he shows goodness and compassion toward those who don't deserve it. That is, toward those who rebelled against him and are by nature children of wrath. Paul describes the grace of God this way in Ephesians 2 verse 4, saying, But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And has raised us up together. And made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. See, God isn't only gracious, but He's rich. In mercy, love, and grace. That is, He abounds in graciousness, mercy, and kindness. And what makes this grace so amazing, again, is that He bestows it upon those who don't deserve it. Even upon those who are dead in their sins and transgressions because of their sinfulness. God acts graciously towards them. And this is why theologically, a grace is often defined as the unmerited favor of God. We do nothing to earn or, or merit the grace of God. It's something that He freely and richly pours out on whom He wills. And He especially demonstrates this grace to His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom He uh, sent to redeem and save undeserving sinners to Himself. This salvation involved, of course, Jesus taking our place, enduring the punishment and curse of death that we alone deserved. Jesus died for the ungodly. And He rose again on the third day in power and glory so that those who were dead in sins might now be raised up to new and everlasting life in Him. And so when we think about it, grace then truly is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's this grace and the abounding love and mercy of God that fuels His pursuit of sinners. <clears throat> but God's pursuit of sinners also, and even often at the very same time, involves His perfect justice. 
along with His abounding grace. Now, some contend that these are contradictory, that that God can only be gracious or He can only be just. He can't be both. But God is surely both. They're not contradictory. They work together. Even when they work together, it's often a great mystery to us. Throughout the Bible, we see that God is a righteous judge who always does what is right and just. In Genesis 18, as as Abraham is interceding for the, the wicked city of Sodom, and in particular, he's probably thinking just of his nephew Lot, and he strengthens his case before the Lord by acknowledging God's righteousness and justice as the supreme might. He says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He acknowledges God's righteousness and His justice. That no matter what happens, it will be the right thing. In Psalm 11, describing God as the judge of all the earth who will judge sin and sinners, the psalmist concludes in verse 7, For the Lord is righteous, He loves righteousness, and His countenance beholds the upright. And friends, we know that Jesus, as the King of righteousness, will be God's minister of justice on that last great day. But God's justice is often administered in, in two ways. There's what we call remunerative justice. And these are the rewards that we receive as benefits of Christ's work on our behalf. And so because the just wrath of God was poured out on Jesus for our sin, well then we have forgiveness in Him. And so that when we confess our sins to God, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. See, He is just in forgiving us because it's Christ who paid the penalty for us and endured what we deserved. And also, we are justly blessed with even eternal rewards because of the fruit of the Spirit of God that enables us to bring, that He enables us to bring uh, forth uh, in glory to Him. These rewards that we receive aren't earned. Right? They're not earned because it's God Himself, the Spirit of the living God, who works in us to will and to do for His glory. That God is just in bestowing these blessings because He is the supreme judge and it's His will and desire. And so that's remunerative justice. But there's also a retributive justice. This is God's just punishment of sin and sinner. The wage and curse of death we know is sin. Or the, the wage and curse of sin is death. And when people refuse to acknowledge God as God, when they so harden their hearts that they exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they wantonly sin, violating God's law and assaulting His perfect holiness, God is just to punish them. This aspect of God's justice, we know, is often despised. By people today. Even by some who claim the name of Christ. They don't want to talk about God's justice. They don't want to talk about Him judging sin and sinner. 
People like to say, you know, God uh, hates the sin but loves the sinner. Well, you know what? Sin and sinner get judged in the judgment. But it's a very real truth. You see, if God wasn't just, if He just overlooked sin and, and didn't justly condemn unrepentant sinners... Well, then he neither would be truly just and righteous, nor would he actually be good and holy. Because a good God is going to bring evildoers to account. And so God must punish sin. And this kind of justice comes to the fore in this violent storm that confronts Jonah and the sailors on this ship that is headed to Tarshish. But as we'll see, accompanying God's justice, again, is His abounding grace as He pursues not only Jonah, but as we'll see, Lord willing, next time, even these pagan sailors. And as we know, Jonah needs God to pursue him. Because Jonah is intentionally running away from God. Remember, Jonah was a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord had called Jonah to go to Nineveh, Nineveh and, and call them to repentance. And Nineveh was the chief city of the Assyrians, uh, Israel's chief enemy at the time. And it was unthinkable. For Jonah to think about going and, and preaching to these wicked enemies. He would rather have them destroyed. And so, but God calls him to go to Nineveh. And then verse 3. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah refuses to heed God's call. And in doing so, he sins against God, running in the very opposite direction. And in doing so, he gives us a glimpse of, of the effects of sin, not only on the unbelieving sinner, but, but even on the sinner who believes in God and, and calls upon his name in faith. Just like Jonah. When a believer, when a Christian sins, there are consequences. Things happen. And the first thing that we note here is that sin is rebellion against God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism question and answer 14 declares that sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And, and so we know that, that God had given a, Jonah a direct command and Jonah failed to conform himself to that command. That he, he failed to obey it. In fact, he rejected it. Now think about this. This... This was the prophet of God. This wasn't your average Joe Israelite. This was a prophet of God. A, a holy man. The prophets often are called the, the man of God. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that even those in the grace of God, and again, for us, it would be those redeemed in Christ, whether a new believer or a well-seasoned saint, we know that sin will always 
be a problem for us. Though in Christ we know and we're sure that we are truly freed from the condemnation of sin, yet as the Apostle Paul gives that wonderful, well, maybe not so wonderful when you think about it, but it is a very good description of the struggle in Romans 7. Of that remnant of the sin nature that in, that's in us, that, that really wars with our mind and our hearts. Our desire is to do that which is right and good in God's sight, but the flesh, that remnant of the sin nature in us, wars against it. So that Paul says, that what I want to do, I don't do, and that's what I don't want to do, that's exactly what I do. Because it's sin warring in him. That's the struggle of the believer in Christ. That remnant of this in nature wars against the presence of the Spirit in our hearts and our lives. Again, that we're, we're freed from the condemnation of sin, right? That's the wonderful thing. You read through Romans 7, and then you start Romans 8, and the very first verse of Romans 8, but there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So yes, you're going to struggle in, with sin, but there is no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. Because He's freed us from the curse of sin and death. But we still struggle. For none of us are immune. We all sin. From the least to the greatest. That's what Jonah shows us. He's the prophet of God. And yet he's sinning greatly against his Lord. And secondly, as we consider Jonah's rebellion against God, we see that the heart which is set to sin will often quickly hasten toward the goal of its desire. And many times without much hindrance, at least at first. And the reason for this is that when we set our hearts to sin, our adversary Satan is quick to spring into action. And when he sees God's people falling into sin, it's as though he's going to try to clear away as many obstacles as he can to make our descent into sin all the quicker. Jonah fled the presence of the Lord. He even fled the borders of Israel as he went to Joppa. He found a ship headed as far away as he could possibly go. He left everything he knew behind. And yet no one stopped him. There were no friends, no family, not even, not even uh, you know, a camel traffic delay on the road. Nothing stopped him. Jonah had free flight to Joppa. And then he got on the ship. He easily found the ship. He, he paid the fare. He, he took his seat down below. And, and then he fell fast asleep. Now certainly to Jonah, that all seemed all too easy. And even as we know, it's, it's easy to... To fall into temptation and sin. And we look back sometimes and, and we see, well, it looks like no one is chasing after us. And so we, we just plunge ourselves into the depths of sin. And we may even feel sorry for ourselves as we do so. Because we wonder, well, doesn't anybody care? 
Why isn't anybody trying to stop me? Why aren't they trying to interrupt my descent into sin? And of course that only serves then to, to further plunge us down. Now it's true that there are times when the Lord does provide interruptions, warnings, admonishments, encouragements, and numerous signs, likely often through faithful friends and others, to, to point us away from sin and, and to, to, to point us back to God. But again, the heart that's set on sin is going to ignore all these. They may be there, but they're going to ignore them, and so they're going to avoid what happens when you commit yourself to sin? You, you don't respond to the text from, from your friend or your family or your loved ones who are concerned about you. You avoid those friends and loved ones who are going, you know are going to urge you to turn away from your sin. They avoid them. Like Jonah sought to avoid any contact with any Jew as he sought to leave just the entire region. He wasn't content just to go even to to Judah. He's from the northern uh, nation of Israel. He could have gone south. He could have gone anywhere within Israel to try to escape God. No, he wanted to get away where he wasn't going to uh, find any of God's people to remind him of what he was leaving behind. And so a heart set on sin is going to sin. And yet sometimes they still wonder, well, where is God in all this? And they might even blame God. God, you never stop me when they, again, have ignored all the signs that God has put in place. Well, it's often not too long after we fall into sin, though, that we begin to feel that sense of shame and guilt as the Holy Spirit begins to prick our conscience to the reality of our sin. And this is often really, the uh, it could be the, the very beginning of God's pursuit of us, if, especially if we've ignored all the signs He's already put in place. But this is often the thing that we begin to sense and see. is when we begin to feel that sense of shame. And yet depending on how we respond... Now we can either, at that time, immediately turn and repent, and I'll tell you right now, that is the way to go. When the Holy Spirit begins to convict you of that sense of shame of your sin, that's the time to turn, humble yourself before the Lord, to turn to Him, to repent of your sin, and confess it before Him. And He'll be just to forgive you of that sin, and wash you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Because of what Christ has done for you. So you can respond that way. And you you ought to respond that way. Or you can do as Jonah did. And just attempt to flee from God's presence. Hardening our hearts and running even faster away from God towards sin. But as we noted before, this is foolish. Right? What Jonah was doing was, was foolish. There's no place that you can go that you can get away from the presence of the Lord. Right? Not the heights of heaven, not the depths of the sea, not even the farthest parts of the earth. God is there. Psalm 139. And of course, Jonah knew all this. And yet he foolishly tried to flee. It was completely irrational. Contrary to what he knew to be true, but... 
As we know, sin has a way of, of clouding our thinking. And our hearts and our minds are not trustworthy at that point. And of course for Jonah, this only got worse. As his heart continued to harden and his conscience was seared to the point where he simply fell fast asleep. He fell asleep because the foolish flight from the presence of the Lord is exhausting. I mean, think about it. Try running away from something you can never run away from. Like the all-knowing, ever-present, sovereign creator of heaven and earth. There is no place we could go in all the universe that God has created that we can escape Him. But for Jonah, again, at least initially, it appears he succeeded. Right? He's gotten away. <clears throat> God didn't stop him. And so he's lulled into a false sense of security and he quickly falls asleep. But this rest for, for Jonah is only temporary as he'll soon be awakened to the full reality of the destruction that sin brings. And beloved of God, this is the, the downward spiral of sin that's a snare for each and every one of us. But there's one other thing we learn here from Jonah's sin. You see, Jonah sinned against God, and he, he did so by simply <clears throat> running away. We're not even told that he said anything to God in response once he received God's call. He just ran away. Think about this kind of sin. It seems kind of harmless. That is, it was Jonah's personal sin, and it doesn't affect anyone else. In fact, it doesn't even seem like anyone else knew about it. And certainly, we're worried about the Ninevites. Well, we know that God easily could have sent another prophet to Nineveh. And no one would have known the difference. And so it was a secret sin. Jonah knew it, and certainly God knew it. But it didn't affect anyone else, right? Friends, though we often fool ourselves into thinking this way, that our sin, even our secret sins done in darkness and behind closed doors, that it doesn't affect or hurt anyone else but ourselves... Again, we think that, but it's not true. Sin corrupts and destroys. And not only will it corrupt and destroy us, it will also corrupt and destroy those around us and our relationships with them. Sin, even secret sins of one individual, can destroy marriages, families, friendships, and any other kind of relationships. Because what's done in secret, eventually, is going to come to light. And when it does, everything is going to explode. And all connected to the one who sinned is going to be affected in some way or another. We see this in the storm that God stirs up on the sea. A violent storm that terrified even these experienced sailors as they knew that their lives were in danger, that their ship would be smashed by the, uh, by the waves, sending them all to a watery grave. Now certainly storms come up on the Mediterranean Sea. 
and some likely even suddenly. But this was no random natural event. And again, the response, and we'll consider this next time as well, the response of these experienced sailors shows that this, is, this was no typical storm that they would have experienced before. Verse 4, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. The sovereign Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, the one of whom Jeremiah declares in Jeremiah 31, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. The storm was sent by the Lord. But why? Because of Jonah's sin. Because of Jonah's sin of rebellion and fleeing from the presence of the Lord, the Lord sent a storm to stop him. Again, up till now, the path of escape had been easy, and and Jonah thought he was free from God's reach. He He was on this ship headed far away from the presence of the Lord, far away from the temple, far away from Jerusalem, far away from the people of God. And certainly as far away as possible from Nineveh, where God had called him to go. Jonah had committed this secret sin. And yet now as the Lord pursues him, the entire ship and all its crew members are in danger. But this storm isn't intended for their destruction. Not for the crew and not even for Jonah. No, God's purpose in sending the storm is to pursue Jonah through loving discipline. As we noted before, God is a God who pursues, even seeking after one of his lost sheep who's gone astray from him, who's rebelled against him like the prodigal son rebelled against his father, and yet the unfailing love and mercy of the father never cease. Beloved of God, what's true for Jonah here is also true for us. God's love for his people is great. His love for you is boundless. Beyond what you could ever possibly imagine. Think about it. The Apostle Paul declares in Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates His own love toward us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're still enemies of God. Christ died for us. This is unfathomable love. Indeed, He so loves us that He adopted us as sons through Jesus Christ, and He holds us fast in His almighty hands, and no one can pluck us out. We can't even jump out, as Jonah was trying to do. We know that God will never leave us nor forsake us. In Christ, beloved in Christ, you belong to the Heavenly Father, the Creator of heaven and earth. It's beyond our comprehension. But God is also a God of justice. And in this storm we see the perfect balance between God's grace and love as He pursues Jonah and His justice as He disciplines and chastises Jonah for his sin. Uh, the writer of the Hebrews, Hebrews twelve six says, For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. Now, as the writer of the Hebrews goes on to to note that this chastening isn't pleasant. No one likes to receive discipline. 
But that's just it. It's not meant to be enjoyed. It's meant to to turn the wayward sheep back to the fold, back to the shepherd, to draw them to repentance and the mercy of grace of God's forgiveness. We see this, for example, in Psalm 32, where the psalmist sings of how the heavy hand of the Lord laid upon him day and night because of his sin. And and he was miserable in body and soul uh, throughout the day and, and throughout the night he couldn't sleep. And that continued until... Until he acknowledged his sin and confessed it to the Lord, and the Lord graciously sent relief. Well, here in Jonah's case, it wasn't a sickness or an ailment, but it was this violent storm which the Lord set out. Literally, the term is hurled, and, and that, that term hurled is often used when uh, of throwing a javelin. And so the Lord, with great precision, kind of hurls this storm and directs it right at Jonah to pierce his heart, to bring him to his senses that he might confess his sin and repent. And so though Satan made the first part of Jonah's trip very easy, God makes this part where where really Jonah is most vulnerable because at this point there's no place he can run. God makes it difficult for Jonah to continue to Tarshish. How is Jonah going to respond? Will he turn and repent? Well, not quite yet. Jonah, though, is awakened. He's awakened by the captain who charges Jonah using the same words, are interesting enough, uh, that the Lord did back in in verse 2 when he was calling him to go to Nineveh. Arise, go to Nineveh and call out against them. Here the captain says, arise and call upon your Lord, your, your God, to plead for his mercy because of the storm. And again, remember, no one knew yet why the storm had come and why it was sent. And the crew members had all called upon their gods and had received no answer. And so the thought of the captain is, well, hey, maybe this guy's God is going to have an answer. Because none of the other gods responded. But we're not told. It's interesting. can't always argue from silence, but it's interesting that we're not told that Jonah cried out to the Lord. <coughs> Pagan sailors are crying out to their idol gods. But Jonah doesn't pray. Again, we're told that the crew members, all even after they cry to their idol gods and get no response, eventually they're actually going to cry out to the Lord. But here on the ship, in the midst of, of great distress, when every life on the ship was in danger... Jonah never calls out to God. Why? Because he knew. He knew the Lord had sent the storm because of him, because of his sin. And you see, Jonah was still too proud to have his sin exposed, even though it meant the loss, the potential loss of many innocent lives on the ship. And so God pursues Jonah even more. Jonah has fled. He's hardened his heart. He refuses to call out to his God in the midst of of a, a desperate situation when lives are at stake. 
But God continues to pursue him. The violent storm increases with no sign from the idol gods of the sailors. And so they decide to to cast lots to see who is responsible. And we see there in verse 7. And the lot fell on Jonah. Jonah was finally exposed. His sin has come to light. And as we'll consider more thoroughly next time, though Jonah doesn't repent, it's actually only now, when he can't escape it, that he realizes how his sin has affected everyone around him, endangering their lives. Still stubborn in his sin, and yet... At least now with some slight compassion toward these perishing men. Jonah tells them to throw him overboard. Because he knows that God wants him. Seeing there was no other way of salvation. The crew members did just that. And as soon as they threw Jonah in the sea... The storm immediately calmed. The ship and all who were on it were spared. And again, we'll look at that a little bit more next Lord's Day. But what of Jonah? Now this may seem like the end for Jonah. Friends, God's pursuit of Jonah isn't over yet. We noted before that Jonah is a picture of Israel at the time. One of the reasons why God includes the book of Jonah is is to be this picture and a warning to His people. Because Israel was in rebellion against God. They were fleeing away from God to idols and forsaking the one true living God. They were steeping themselves further and further into sin and wickedness. And yet God continued to graciously pursue them. Chastening them at times making their lives difficult, even using the Assyrians of of Nineveh to to carry them away into captivity. And yet the Lord promised that one day they would return because He would continue to pursue them and their stubborn hearts. Ultimately, of course, sending His Son, Jesus Christ, So Jonah is a picture of of Israel at the time. But beloved of God, Jonah is also a picture of us. Of redeemed but imperfect believers in Christ. Of those who daily struggle against temptation and the remnant of this in nature that remains in us. Again, sometimes we may do well and, and we achieve victory after victory. But other times we know that we fail miserably. Perhaps even falling into the same sin over and over and over and over again. We sin and our hearts grow cold for a time and and we wonder if God notices. Or if anyone else notices. But be assured, brothers and sisters, the Lord, the Lord who is most righteous and just, the Lord who abounds with grace and mercy, takes notice. And He is always relentlessly Pursuing us. Even as the good and faithful shepherd left the 99 and pursued that one sheep who had strayed away. Sin 
even a moment of, of pleasure, deceit, or rebellion done in secret is, is known by the Lord. And though His just chaste chastisement for our sin will most certainly be unpleasant, beloved, know with all confidence that the Lord chastens those whom He loves. And He loves those for whom His Son, Jesus Christ, died. Even us, the undeserving sinners that we are, Christ died for us. And as, as the abounding grace of God and mercy of God and, and His perfect uh, justice and, and holiness come together at the cross so that you have freedom from the condemnation of sin. So that you could have forgiveness. So that in time, the Creator of all things would, would pursue you and would bring you to Himself, calling you to Himself. And that He would continuously wash and cleanse you, purifying you and sanctifying you throughout your life on this earth. All so that you might be perfectly holy and without blame on the last great day when Christ returns all to the praise of His glorious name. Praise God that He pursues us because He so loves us. Let's pray. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks for Your Word, for this truth, this, this reminder of our own weaknesses and our frailties of our own imperfections. And Lord, no matter we've been saved for uh, a few days or a few years or our whole and uh, much of our lives, we all know the struggles of sin. And we know that there are times when we fail and we fail miserably and, and our hearts grow hard. But we rejoice and give thanks that you never stop pursuing us chosen us before the foundation of the world. You've called us in time. You've secured our salvation in Christ. And once in your hands, there's no way we're getting out. And you pursue us in these times of rebellion when we won't and when we can't seek after you. You abound in grace and mercy, pursuing us. And that even as we go through a different trials and challenges in our life that are related because of our sin. And we pray, Lord, especially that even when that begins to happen, that we begin to see that how our sin, even our secret sin, affects those around us. And that we're endangering others because of our own sinfulness. So we just praise you and thank you that you are relentless. In pursuing us. And we pray especially Lord. That we would never ever. Take that abounding grace of yours for granted. That we would never have the attitude. That we would say. Let's, let me continue in sin. So that grace may abound. Lord, that is a wicked wicked idea. And we pray that you would help us to. Daily look to you for that all-sufficient grace that you give to us and to engage in those battles. But yet when we fall into sin, that we would quickly humble ourselves before you and confess those sins before you to be washed and cleansed 
by the shed blood of our Savior Jesus Christ so that we don't compound our, our sin even more and again, even endanger those around us. Father, we just thank you for these reminders and we pray that you would just impress these truths upon each of our hearts, drawing us all closer to yourself, all to the praise of your glorious name. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.